Noah and his family and all the animals have gotten into the ark and the floodwaters begin to rise. Last week, I talked, I spoke to the purpose of God going into this act of judgment of the flood. And in particular, I tried to answer the question or wrestle with the question, how do we, uh, how do we make sense of this um, incredible act of judgment on God's behalf? If God is good, how do we make sense of this act of judgment? This week, our focus is more on God's purpose in the flood going out of the flood. What was God doing in this flood? Was it just an act of angry destruction or was there something else going on? Now there's an interesting thing about the story of the flood, which if you read through Genesis 7 to 8, uh, 7 and 8, um, you'll, get, you'll get some of this. Um, is that through the story we get all these kind of literary callbacks to Genesis 1 and the story of creation. For example, several times through the flood story, the number 7 comes up. Things keep happening on the seventh day or on the seventh month. And especially we might look at chapter 7 verse 10. Noah and, and the animals, his family, they're all on the ark, and seven days later is when the flood begins. Another callback to Genesis 1 is that the animals are preserved, one of each sex, male and female. And in creation, we get this description of God creating the animals, that, that they're made each according to kind. And they're given the command, the animals, not just the humans, are given the command to be fruitful and multiply. And so God, in preserving male and female on the ark of all these animals, is preserving the opportunity for them to be fruitful and multiply. We've even got a hint where as the waters come up and the ark rises up with them, it says that the ark floated on the face of the waters, just as if we think back to Genesis 1, the spirit hovered or brooded over the face of the waters. And I think these are all intentional links in the story back to creation. But what does this mean? I think it indicates that God's purpose in this flood event was not just punishment or destruction. It actually has to do with God's recreation, with God's restarting the good creation that he had made, but that through time had become corrupted and broken. And it's this recreative language that I think we need to think of as the framework for what God does coming out of the flood. 
So, in establishing this world in a fresh way, the story that um, Simon read for us, Noah comes out of the ark and, and is commanded to bring all the animals out of the ark. And we read in verse 20 of chapter 8 that Noah makes a pleasing offering to God. And that might be reminiscent to you of Abel's offering. Only this time, no one knocks him on the head. Pleased with this offering, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. For the, implica- ah, sorry, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. Interesting here that God seems to accommodate to the fact that humans are broken and corruptible. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, because the inclination of their hearts is evil from youth. And then he adds a further promise about the reliability of the created order. He says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God's promise to Noah is that the natural world that had been undone by this flood, the natural world that will remain and be steadfastly upheld by God in all of its times and its seasons, And then God reiterates what he said to Adam and Eve at the beginning. He says, God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He says, verse 2 of chapter 9. Am I in 9 now? Yes, 9. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth. And on every bird of the air, on everything that creeps on the ground, and all, and on all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Sorry, I'm in chapter 9. I think here we've got a similarity to God's statement that humanity will have dominion in the earth. That the fear of of humanity will uh, the fear of creation of animals of fish and birds they'll be afraid of humanity again there's a recognition that humans aren't what they were originally decided uh, designed to be now verse 3 every moving thing that lives shall be food for you and just as i gave you the green plants i give you everything i think if anyone, this might be controversial, but if there's a verse in Scripture that um, advocates for Christian vegetarianism, um, in a strange way, this might be it. Because in the first instance of God's creation, he gave all plants, and then it was due to their corruption that, they, that God said, it's fine, you can have animals too now. So the question might be, 
Will we be eating animals in the new heavens and the new earth? I don't know. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning, and from every animal I will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image God made mankind. You remember back to the story we looked at last week, the reason for the flood, God looked at the earth and violence had filled the earth. And so here we have a commandment. You know, in Genesis 1, there was no commandment, don't kill each other. There was no need for it. But because of sin, because of the fall, the earth had filled itself up with violence. And now God gives that commandment, don't kill one another. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. This commandment to breed for humans is reiterated. Finally, Genesis 9, 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So maybe you learnt that in Sunday school, that every time you look and you see a rainbow in the sky, or perhaps you've got the mister on the hose just the right way and the sun hits it, and you see that rainbow, you give thanks to God, because he's a God who makes promises and keeps them. So we've just gone through the, the covenant and the promises that God makes to Noah, after the flood. And what's the point in all of this? I have two points to make about it. The first is that God's judgment, even here in the flood, which looks so kind of complete and so devastating, is less about... God doing something to us out of his anger and more about the consequences of our actions coming in upon us. To illustrate what I mean, I need to go back into chapter 7 of Genesis, verse 11. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. 
And what does it mean that the windows of heaven were opened? That might just be a metaphor, right? Like a, a nice image to help you understand uh, or to illustrate what's going on. But if you think back to Genesis 1, which is a few weeks ago now, God's creation involved the creation of a vault over the earth. This dome-like structure that separated the waters from the waters. And this was an image in the ancient understanding of how creation worked, that there was waters up there. There was a vault in the sky, like a, a domed ceiling. And beyond that were water, was water. And so the, the Genesis account has talked about separation of the waters from the waters. So the image of the, the windows opening draws on that language. That the waters that were up there that God had separated, have now come back together. Now, water is not just water. In the ancient mind, water, especially the Hebrew mind, water, the seas, the ocean, was an image and a representation of chaos. It was a dangerous and a threatening thing. If you think about some of the, um, the language in the Old Testament, there's this beast called Leviathan, which is sort of pictured as a sea creature, a devouring sea beast. And if you think about the book of Revelation, it's the, the beast comes up out of the sea. And even later in Revelation, it says that the sea will be no more. In the new heavens and the new earth. So we've got to be thinking about this not literally, but symbolically. And water is a symbol for chaos. And when humanity, who'd been created by God and given this awesome identity, turned all of that good order into chaos. The judgment is pictured here as God allowing that chaos to come crashing in upon them. It's an image, I think, the flood, that not only did God act in judgment, but actually humans and the corruption of humans uh, led to their own self-destruction. Because they were the God-created divine image-bearing people, they were the ones in the center of this creation who, in a sense, creation needed them to be who God made them to be. And everything kind of became unraveled. Are there any, like, English nerds, not English-British people nerds, but, like, literature nerds in the house? Like, one here somewhere. Um, I, if you've ever read the play King Lear, right? It's the story of a king who prefers comforting lies to the truth. And what happens in that story is King Lear 
believes the people who are lying to him, and then everything turns to chaos. And there's this kind of amazing, dramatic scene where the king is out in the middle of the sort of wilderness, and there's a storm out there, and everything's going crazy, and he's going crazy and howling at the storm. The idea in that play is that because the king believed a lie, because the king preferred lies to truth, even the whole creation started to kind of unravel. And I think that's a similar sort of thing we get here. Because humans had traded in their divine destiny, their divine identity for violence, corruption, abuse. Creation itself came crashing back upon them. Well, like I said before, God was not content with just destroying and punishing. And you know, a lot of people who go through highly difficult things, not all, but many, um, end up looking back on those times and saying that was exactly what needed to happen. I've known people who've been in car accidents and they've said it had to happen. I I needed, you know, that woke me up to where I was. Well, this flood incident was never just about cutting things out. It was about creating a hope, creating a new... creating a new. So God has made, and we went through the, some of the details, a new covenant with humanity, restating much of the old covenant, And adding to it. But as amazing as it sort of is to see that God had basically destroyed everything and then decided to start again, it wasn't as good as the new covenant that we live under now. Years ago, someone preaching here used this analogy for the new covenant or new creation. And they said, there's two kinds of new, right? If there's a production line and they're making new cars, each car is a new car. That's one type of new. But another thing might be to say we used to have the combustion engine and now people have created and are beginning to really make strides in the the electric motor. That's not just a new thing, a new iteration of the same old thing. This is a total revolution. You might say we used to be able to pick up the phone and speak to people on the phone. And now... We have the internet. We can do so much more. This is a new thing completely. 
This covenant that God made with Noah built upon and upgraded the old thing that was given to Adam. But we now live in the time in which Christ has given us a new covenant that is completely different. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. At the flood, God sort of hit reset on the computer, right? And in Christ, we've got a whole new system. We've had all of the hardware, all of the software upgraded. We've been given something completely new. I'll illustrate that with just a couple of things before I finish. Before and after the flood, Genesis talks about the thoughts of people's hearts. How they're corrupted and and especially beforehand it says that the hearts of humanity were only evil continually. But in Christ, the promises of God have come true that he would take away our hearts of stone and we would be given hearts of flesh. If we're in Christ, we haven't just been improved, we've been remade. We're something entirely different, even if physically we look the same. We're something entirely different from what we were. And so in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, the mind is addressed in this way. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. Now, we need to retain humility, of course. We don't want to overshoot and imagine ourselves to be far better than we are. But I also think we need to rise up to a self-understanding of what God has made us to be. If my mind is full of evil thoughts and wickedness, and yet I'm in Christ... Those thoughts are not evidence that I'm not in Christ. Those thoughts are an opportunity to go to God and say, Hey, I know that you've made me new. I know that those thoughts are not actually true to who I am. And we can be transformed in a way that those those people pre-flood couldn't be outside of Christ. And lastly, I touched on this last week because it's a link from the Noah story through to the new covenant. Where there's a comparison drawn between the flood in Noah's time and the baptism that we undergo as Christians. And so just as the flood cleansed the earth, let's say, And God preserved a remnant. 
in baptism, when we have given our lives to Christ and we've been saved by Him and made into a new creation, we go down in baptism, flooded by, drowned in those waters, and then raised to new life, a new creation. The difference is, God doesn't need to save a remnant as he did with Noah. Because if we were to read on in the story, one of the first things Noah does is falls straight into sin. And so the story kept going. But for us, God has put to death the old man, the old self, the old nature, and raised us to new life with Christ. We've got to own that. We've got to believe it. And we've got to live it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you and your um, power and wisdom have given us redemption by the blood of Jesus. And that in our baptism, you've cleansed us, you've made us into a new creation. I thank you, Father, that this is not our work. That we were, as your word says, dead in our sins, but you've made us alive to Christ. We are new creations. And I ask God for each person here the, the grace to see and understand and perceive that truth. And that we might be able to perceive ourselves the way that you perceive us. God, keep us humble. Keep us, um, keep us thankful for what you've done for us. But also, God, help us to see the, the magnitude of what you've given. Nothing less than new creation, God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.